you're in the one of the toughest spots in terms of policing. Now it's just 10 times worse. We have people not just living on the streets, but living in low-income supportive hotels who are going through absolute hell. What does it look like from your insider perspective? You try to set up a tent on one of their blocks, the first thing that's gonna to happen to you is a gang member's gonna approach you and they're gonna say, hey, this is our block. You either pay your entire social security check to stay on the block, or if you don't wanna do that, you have to agree to house our women for sex work, our drugs, or our guns. It's too dangerous to be homeless in a place that was created for the homeless. My guest today is Dion Joseph, senior police officer with LAPD. He's been working in Skid Row for decades. And today, he'll share with us his firsthand experience helping the homeless and fighting the criminal elements on the ground. This is a reality that people are afraid to talk about. I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. I'm tired, because right now, people are dying. Until we get injunctions that actually bar repeat offenders who are not homeless from coming into the area and selling drugs, hiding under the guise of hom homelessness, nothing is going to change. I'm CMI Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Dion, it's great to have you back on. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. We had a video of you that went viral about how you got involved with the police force. Uh -huh. We want to talk to you about Skid Row. You've been a police officer in the Skid Row. We want to check in with you how it's going there. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you got into the police force? Well, I didn't want to be a police officer at all. Uh, you know, I was indoctrinated like many young African-Americans in the early 90s to not trust police officers. They were our natural enemy. And uh, what happened was I ended up needing a job. I was out of work uh, because my family business crashed. And I was out of work for about three months. And at the same time, I met the most wonderful woman on the planet, my beautiful wife. And at the time, I proposed to her. And I was like, man, I got to be able to provide for her. But I wanted to do anything else but policing, but I had uh, some friends and a family member who was a police officer say, hey, look, they're hiring at this police force. Why don't you go check it out? And I was like, that one? The, the, that one? Oh, hell no. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Even you had a family member that was a police officer, yes. you still didn't have still, a good person? Still didn't have a, because I was racially profiled twice. And of course, it was fresh off the heels of the Rodney King incident, Dalton Street, and other incidents that the media and musicians and the, the music I listened to kept pumping into my head. And also activists that I associated with myself with who were has this one-dimensional one view of policing. So uh, you, the, no job would call me. So the only job out of all the jobs I put in for was the police department. And, and that was a shock. I just called that God ordering my steps. This has to be from a higher power because I didn't want this at all. And then I get there and I uh, discover that 90% of everything that was told to me about uh, uh, what they were training police officers for was a complete lie. They weren't teaching us to hate black people. They weren't telling us that black people were targets. And in fact, it was the opposite. We literally spent more time uh, dealing with human relations and talking about racial issues. Uh, I probably learned more Spanish than how to keep my head from being blown off in the street. Uh, and I was surprised at how open they were to listening to me, uh, African, young African-American, telling about the African-American experience, our feelings. And uh, that was very refreshing. And then I hit the streets and I, I worked with some incredible officers from all walks of life, which helped me break my own stereotypes of what I thought police were. Because what we're falling for in this country right now is something called availability bias. And we're only believing what's being shown to us or what's being made available to us. So if what's being shown to you is the negative exception of law enforcement or a perceived negative exception, that's what you're going to end up believing. And I, I was a victim of that or from that. So meeting officers who were white, black, gay, straight, Hispanic, who were all 
good human beings trying to do a very tough job. I'm not saying they were perfect, but the vast majority of officers, 99% of police officers are good human beings trying to do a tough job. I call it, they're called a microcosm of society. Uh, I always tell people when I speak to groups across this country, college students or whatever, I say, look, uh, in the United States of America, there are 330 million people. How many of those people do you believe are good people? The vast majority, right? And everybody raises their hand. They say the vast majority of people from all walks of life, white, black, gay, straight, Christian, Jew, Muslim, even devil worshipers, great people, right? Atheists, you know, great people. But also in the United States of America, there's that low hundred thousands uh, or low millions of individuals who cause all the drama, raise all the havoc, and make, we make us all believe the world is a rolling dumpster fire in the dry forest. Uh, and they raise their hand and they agree with that. So the, my next question was, where do law enforcement agencies recruit from? The American public. And I can promise the everyone in America that most of the people they select from are decent people trying to do a tough job. We're just human beings doing a, a, dealing with humanity. And sometimes negative things can happen. And uh, the only thing that I do expect is when that negative exception rears their ugly head, and I think we all can agree, is that they should be held accountable. And, uh, and that's why I was glad to see what happened in Memphis when those officers crossed the line and uh, ended up killing that young man, Tyree Nichols. Yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Birch Gold. Despite the U.S. blowing through the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling in January, White House still is not planning to reduce spending. While our national leadership has lost control of fiscal responsibility, you don't have to become a victim. Now would be a great time to diversify into gold with Birch Gold. In times of high uncertainty and instability, gold is king, it's dependable. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Visit birchgold.com California to claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. Think about this. To dig our country out of this mountain of debt, every single taxpayer in America would have to write a check for $247,000 and it's only getting worse. Protect yourself with gold today by visiting birchgold.com California. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, you can trust Birchgold to protect your future. Visit birchgold.com California today. Now let's go back to the episode. You were racially profiled. Can you tell us what happened and what, what was this process for you to to change your views. Well, when I was racially profiled, I was racially profiled twice as a, uh, as a civilian and three times as a police officer. But let's deal with when I was a civilian. Uh, my brother and I were driving his white Geo Metro. What brother's gonna steal a Geo Metro, right? <laughs> and we're pulling out of the gas station and we got pulled over by a Long Beach Police Department. And uh, literally it was a gang officer who got out of the car and approached us and says, uh, hey, uh, we, we think this car is stolen. And we look at each other like, what? This is a Geo Metro. <laughs> Who wants a Geo Metro, right? And then we looked at the guy, and he was one of our high school classmates. And oh, I, I, wow. that was really, really, really heartbreaking. Another time, I was driving on the freeway in my 89 Nissan Sentra, and I got pulled over by a police officer. And he, uh, he didn't tell me why, he was pulling me why he pulled me over. He just kept saying, where was I going? Where, 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 were you, where are you going? He asked me over and over again. I was like, finally, I got smart when I was like, I'm going to the crack house, you know? <laughs> I just got frustrated and angry. Another time, I was going to a Cal State party, and uh, I'll never forget, it was a carload of me and my friends. Uh, we were all black, and we literally got pulled over. He, the officer never told us why. And then a carload of white guys <laughs> pulled up, and pulled their pants down, and mooned the officer. <laughs> <laughs> and the officer just let them go by. We're sitting here still trying to figure out why we got stopped. 
So these are things that, that, that actually happened to me that are real. But, I don't, but at the time, even back then, uh, was yeah. that in the 90s? Or that was, was in it? the 90s. That was in the 90s. And back then, once again, those things coupled with what was being shown on TV, the music I listened to, KRS-One, Public Enemy, uh, you know, uh, all those rap groups who were like F the police all day long, NWA, that helped shape my thinking. And those contacts, those negative contacts didn't help. But I forgot about the positive contacts that I had with law enforcement. And I remember as a young black male breaking down on the 405 freeway after a hot date. And I'm in a tank top, <laughs> you know, I'm yoked out, I got these muscles, and my car broke down, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm stranded. And the police pulled up behind me, and I'm thinking, oh my God, now what? The officer walks up to me, and he says, hey, what's going on? I said, my car broke down, officer. And he goes, you know what? Get back in your car. This officer pushed me from Inglewood all the way to Long Beach, where I lived. He physically pushed you? He used his car. He used his car, wow. And pushed me all the way home. That was a great experience. Another great experience is I was in a fight. A young man had hit my mother. And man, I went to town. <laughs> he got these hands. <laughs> and I loved that uh, a police officer pulled up and uh, instead of just handcuffing me and throwing me to the ground and all the stuff like that, uh, he really took the time to investigate. And when he did that, he was like, you did what you had to do. <laughs> I was like, you were defending your mother. And uh, they let me go uh, when the neighbors and everybody came out. But he was very professional. So I've had good and bad experiences. Unfortunately, it's always the bad ones that stick in your mind. It, it causes you to forget the good. But this is what I tell people. In the absence of meaningful context with people, we tragically rely on stereotypes of one another. And I heard this great quote from our, one of my personal heroes her, heroes, her name is Dr. Pam Wiley. And when she said this, it resonated with me. And my goal as a law enforcement officer right now is to try to have as many meaningful contacts with the public as possible to tear down these walls uh, and tear down these stereotypes so they can know the heart of who a police officer is. So that's my mission right now in life is really to try to help agencies create those meaningful contacts, open those doors figuratively, not literally, put down your gun and badge and be human to people so they can see who you are, not just what you do. Because what we do is important, but I think it's more important for them to see who we are and that needs to be seen right now like never before. In your story, which was this, this one-minute viral video that we had, we're going to show it to our audience. So I got assigned this white officer. He was six foot four, tall, blonde hair, blue eyed, that stereotypical picture of what you would think a racist cop with a big handlebar <laughs> mustache. So we ended up getting in the car with him and I'm, we're driving to Oakwood where he worked and I couldn't believe I was hearing it. What's up, Snow? How you doing, Snowden? God bless you, man. Thank you, man. Thanks for what you did for me, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for saving my cousin. And I'm sitting here like, <laughs> in shock, right? This white guy is getting more love than I've ever seen a black person get, right? So one day I asked him, I said, sir, why do these people love you so much? Because I'm thinking in my head, in my woke mind, uh, are you so corrupt and so dangerous that these people are afraid of you that they say hello to you? <laughs> so he pulls the car over and says, Dion, this is Oakwood. It's the most dangerous part of the area we serve. The people who live here understand there's a high level of crime and they know why we're here. Here's the thing they want from you and me. Whether we're arresting them, saving them, counseling them, they just want us to treat them like human beings with dignity and respect. And as long as you work with me, young man, you will treat everyone we contact with dignity and respect. And all I could say to that was, yes, sir. Here you mentioned the, the officer told you to treat everybody with dignity and respect. Yes. Is it possible to do that? How's it doing that in the police force? It's, it's a challenge because we ourselves are human beings, but we're held to, a, held to a higher standard. And I believe in that. And I believe it's our job to do everything within our human power to approach everybody with a 
equal heart of service, to treat, try our best to treat everybody uh, equally when we arrive. But there is no such thing as equal outcomes. That will never happen, and, and, and it's an impossible burden for someone to bear to try to force them to guarantee equal outcomes. Things are going to change. Uh, the outcomes are going to be different based on who you contact. You could contact somebody who hates cops. Yeah, so that what you consider a seven-minute traffic stop might now take 20 minutes because this individual has been indoctrinated to hate cops or another individual who might suffer from autism. And you really have to take that extra 10, 15 minutes to recognize they're on the spectrum and try to understand those symptoms, you know. Or it could be someone who loves cops and that contact is done in two seconds, okay. But there's no such thing as equal outcomes based on the personalities of the individuals that uh, we contact. But the way to change that is once again, to have those meaningful contacts. You have those meaningful contacts. Guess what? You're gonna lose your fear of that individual you're dealing with. And maybe some of these contacts will be a lot smoother. But there's no such thing as equal outcomes. But I do believe we should all, as law enforcement officers, try to respond equally to everybody we contact. Now you are serving in Skid Row, which is a, which is a rough, uh, place and yeah. how are you doing all of this in Skid Row? Because mm. because there's different elements. Well, there, right. Well, through a lot of prayer. <laughs> Skid Row, <laughs> you need prayer just uh, just doing that. But no, it's tough. It's really hard now. I think it's harder now than it's ever been. Uh, especially when you're uh, interjecting fentanyl uh, into the process. I'm seeing people who I've known for 15, 20 years uh, pass away in tents like I've never seen before, and it's so heartbreaking. I know a young lady who I met when she was, what, 17 years old. Young lady, and she's 36 when she was found dead in her uh, hotel room uh, from a fentanyl overdose. And it's not just fentanyl itself. They're lacing everything, cocaine, methamphetamine, marijuana, everything within it. So I'm seeing a lot of my friends, I don't call them homeless or transients or things like that, I call them my friends, uh, pass away in the street. It just infuriates me because uh, our, our justice system has uh, bought into <coughs> the social justice narrative about uh, criminal justice reform. And as a result, uh, it's giving way to cartels, it's giving way to gang members who are poisoning the people I serve every day. And it's hard, it's hard when the encampments are up and there's nothing you can do about it. And you know, there's a woman being raped in a tent but you can't see her. It's hard when somebody's overdosing or having a heart attack and you can't see them, you can't save them or someone's being sexually assaulted or, or stabbed or shot. It's very, very difficult. Or when you finally get into a tent you're finding sawed off shotguns and AK-47s and, and uh, pounds of cocaine and things of that nature right in the midst of what's supposed to be a recovery zone. You got 108 programs, well now 110 programs designed to help people, but you have all this stuff going outside the program that is also permeating inside the programs of people who are supposed to be trying to recover. And I've always said, if you wanna help people change, you gotta create the environment first. You are not serious about making change in anyone's life if you don't first create the environment. Recovery zones like Skid Row and other places should be considered like a sanctuary. If you come in there and you sell drugs to anybody in a hotel, on the streets there, or in front of a recovery zone, you should do serious prison time. And I'm, I'm dead serious, uh, but that's gone now. You serve in a Skid Row, it's a pretty dangerous area. What's the most dangerous thing that 
happened to you? First of all, were you afraid <laughs> of going there? Oh, I've been afraid for it many times on Skid Row. Uh, and I'm a big 270 pound man. I'm nice with these, you know, when <laughs> at least when I'm in shape, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but I do have fears. And there, there have been several instances where my life was uh, nearly taken from me. Uh, we had an individual walk into the station uh, with a firearm and he was mentally ill and it was gonna be suicide by cop. Thankfully, the gun was uh, <laughs> fake, but it didn't look like a fake gun when the people were running around in the lobby dodging for cover, and it's me. Uh, I've had people put hits on my life, you know. So uh, what did you do in that incident? Oh, just once again, I didn't run. You know, I was scared, but I didn't run <laughs> <laughs> because I knew the people need, needed me. But I heard rumors of people that were looking to take my life because of how effective I was uh, in the area of not just building bridges, but making things safer. Uh, but I knew if I took myself out of the field, and this is around 2005, 2006, if I took myself out of the field, the people that I serve in my area would be more vulnerable to crime if I stopped. But thankfully, the relationship I had with the community quelled all of that. But there have been several instances where my life was in danger. Uh, but once again, uh, bravery is this, uh, pushing past your fears to complete a goal. It doesn't mean you're not afraid. It's not an absence of fear, okay? And also the definition of a hero is this. Uh, definition of a hero is not someone who just goes out and protects people who love and respect them. That's not a hero. It's also somebody who protects those who loathe and hate them. And yes, I'm the senior lead officer, not only for drug program op operators, case managers, pastors, but I'm also the senior lead officer for gang members, for sex workers, for drug addicts. And if they need my help, damn it, I'm gonna help them. Because my badge doesn't say protect and serve some. It says protect and serve everybody. It's gonna be easy for some, with some or others? No, but I'm supposed to protect and serve everybody. Now, you have been trying mm -hmm. to build relationship with these people. Like you you kind of go out of your way to actually get to know these people and help them, right? Is that what you've been doing in Skid Row? Absolutely. I, once again, I, I had to, there was years, my first seven years in Skid Row was spent doing what I thought was right. It wasn't bad, but what I thought was right. And I went out there and I said, okay, I'm going to clean up this community by arresting everybody that I saw. You know, if you break the law, you're getting in the backseat of this car. A noble effort, but I wasn't supported by the justice system that told me to do that. Because for every bad guy I was putting in, they were getting out and they were being replaced by two more <laughs> by our wonderful justice. And this was before now. Now it's just 10 times worse. So when I elevated to the position of senior lead officer, uh, uh, I tried to do it the same way. And just something in my spirit said, Dion, that doesn't work show these people who you are, and also you have to try to identify with them to a degree. And how I changed, how I developed patience with, the, with these individuals, wonderful individuals, is I look back on my own life and my own trauma. And when I was a kid, I was physically abused by who I call loved ones in horrible ways. And I also went to a school where they abused children on a regular basis. They would fake phone calls to your parents and they would, wow. yeah, you know, basically abuse you with paddles, sticks or whatever. They got your hair, pulled a chunk of my hair out, uh, pulling me, dragging me around on the floor. Horrible things happening to me. So what that taught me as a kid and growing up to this day, I still struggle with it, is <clears throat> I may love people, but I only keep people at arm's length. <laughs> because, you know, I'm afraid to love you or get to get to know you and then you turn around and hurt me because if my loved ones and teachers could do it to me, what are you going to do? Now, I didn't go through half of what the people in Skid Row went through. I mean, what these people go through on a daily basis is just insane. So I didn't go through half of what they went through. So how do you expect for them to trust you unless you stop and try to identify and understand that they're dealing with a lot of trauma? So what I did was identify with them in that way and developed patience because a lot of these individuals, they've been through the ringer in their personal life and they just need somebody to 
show them love and understanding from a place that they've been indoctrinated like myself not to expect it and that's from the police and I wanted to give that to them and it's worked it's really worked for me and building those bridges uh, building relationships the community is helping. So you become friends with them is that what you, you become like family you kind of to a degree you know the 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 base word of family is fam, fam uh, familiar is fam right <laughs> your family you know somebody you don't trust somebody until you get to know them so what I did was I purposely figuratively put down my badge and gun, allowed the people to get to know me. Some of them are my Facebook friends. They know exactly how I think, what I think of them. I'll have community meetings in the streets. I'm passing out hygiene kits. I'm trying to get to know their names. I, I'm getting older. I can't remember the names like I used to, but when they see me, they know. <laughs> you know, but I, I want to know who they are so they can begin to trust me. And it's really been effective for me in reducing crime. And how is it in the <coughs> schedule for some of our audience ma that may not know what's happening? Because we, we just, when we drive by these areas, we see tents mm -hmm. and we kind of see homeless people. We think it's poverty. Mm. What does it look like from your insider perspective? One of the biggest myths out there that they keep trying to push is that it's about housing and poverty. Uh, I'll agree with that to some extent, you know, but what we're seeing uh, is most of the people, about two thirds of the individuals that I've been dealing with for the last 27 years, it's not, it has nothing to do with housing or poverty. It has everything to do with addiction and the failure of our mental health system to help those who are struggling on the spectrum of uh, mental illness. So, and it's even worse when it's a, a dual diagnosis, when it's those things together. So two thirds of the population can't change because once again, addiction and the environment is not conducive to that. When you're allowing drug dealers to run willy nilly in a recovery zone and not, and there's not serving any consequence for it, you're gonna have a hard time getting people off that endless spiral of addiction, and that's just a fact. What do you mean by that? They're letting drug dealers into the recovery? Can you explain? Yeah. It's very hard for us to, okay. to well, through understand and accept this. <laughs> <laughs> through several means. First, the laws are broken. Uh, Proposition 47, Proposition 57, and AB 109 took all the teeth out of felony crimes. As a result, it created this revolving door where criminals go in, but they come right back out. And after a while, they become emboldened and say, wow, I'm not going to jail for selling drugs in front of a drug program? Oh, great. I can continue doing my thing. Now, on a street level, this is what it looks like. Uh, a lot of them infiltrate some of the hotels. They try to infiltrate some of the shelters. Uh, and, and it's easy for them to get in because many of their customers who were unhoused now got housed into one of these facilities so the drug dealers know where they are but they also know that some of these individuals still owe them drug debts so what they'll do is the drug dealer will come up to them and say hey i heard you got your housing at the such and such hotel okay but you still owe me a thousand dollars so this is what you're going to do you're either going to sell this drugs these drugs for me in your hotel in your hotel and what we call turn this place out or I'm gonna kick you out of your room for 12 hours and I'm gonna use your room to sell drugs and you can come back maybe two or three in the morning and get some sleep. This is literally what's happening wow. inside of some of the programs in Skid Row where I, where I work. And I'm hearing this from the community. I know it's happening, but it's very difficult to get them peace or justice with the laws broken the way they are. Yeah, it's very So essentially difficult. they either will come in, <clears throat> they will uh, take your place. Oh yeah or uh, in, the, in the housing, or they actually make somebody that's taking the housing. Uh, but this, this is an area for these people to recover from. Right, right, right. And, but, but once again, uh, when you take a hands-off approach to uh, criminal justice, this is what happens. I remember from 2000 and, 
uh, 6 to 2011, we had Skid Row relatively clean and safe because we had all facets of the justice system seem to be working in harmony to a degree, you know, and still trying to offer services and outreach, but at the same time taking more of a zero tolerance stance on crime. That all went out of the window when they voted for Prop 57 and Prop 47, and also a couple of federal injunctions that completely stopped any uh, enforcement of quality life issues in the area. Now, do these service providers, do they know this is happening in their... Yes. In the yeah, they absolutely know it's happening. And I'm not saying that these service providers are bad. Many of them are great organizations. They, they really want to put themselves out of the business, some of them, but it's out of their control. Yeah, they're not police officers. And a lot of them are afraid too. You know, and a lot of them want to speak out and they want to step up and they want to tell the truth, but they can't, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, they know. Everybody knows what's going on. You know, it's not a secret. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, until the laws change and until people start taking criminal justice seriously again, until we get back to crime control, and, and people, that's a frightening word to people, crime control. But listen, crime control is not designed to take away anyone's civil liberties. It's designed to enhance them through making sure we enforce the law and reinforce order so that we can enhance your civil liberties, okay? But right now we have people not just living on the streets, but living in low income supportive hotels who are going through absolute hell. There are people who live in these, some of these hotels who say it's no better than what's happening out on the street. And then on top of that, now I'm dealing with uh, isolation because I'm living in a single room by myself. So I'm isolated, but if I come out or if I open the door, the dope man's gonna be right there waiting for me, you know, or, or wow. the loan shark. So it's just a, a nightmare for those individuals and I, I, my heart breaks for them. And uh, I'm only one man and I have some great officers that I work for, but we're only as effective as the justice system that supports us. And we don't have that right now at all. You're mentioning the criminal justice reforms and all that. like. If you get a call from these housing facilities, mm -hmm. somebody selling drugs, mm -hmm. what can you guys do? Do you guys? Well, it depends what, on what's happening now. Well, what's happening now is if we get a call and we get good, solid information, uh, you know, specific information, yes, we could send uh, our officers in there, undercover narcotics units to go in there. But once again, the staff is afraid. They're afraid to report this stuff, so we don't get a lot of specific information that helps us become effective, uh, you know. But what I think would help, uh, if we can't help on the inside as strong as we would like, at least help us on the outside. If you, we, we arrest somebody selling uh, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, fentanyl within a thousand feet of a drug program or a low-income supportive housing service or a shelter, hey, let's put that person away for three years, okay, and give the community some relief from that activity and send the message that this will not be tolerated here because this is a recovery zone. This is where people are supposed to get better. But that doesn't exist. And until we get that back, until we get injunctions that actually bar repeat offenders who aren't a homeless, who are not homeless from coming into the area and selling drugs, hiding under the guise of hom homelessness, nothing is going to change. When you arrest somebody like that, how long do they go away? Oh, they're from? out probably in a couple of days. <laughs> wow. they, they, they don't do any time. It's a revolving door. Uh, then uh, they're free until their hearing if they show up for that. Uh, you know, so the message being sent to the criminal element is pretty much you can do whatever you want. And the police, not that we don't want to, is basically we can't stop you. We can't stop. Is the staff afraid of retaliation? That's Absolutely. Why Absolutely. I mean, Because these people will come out and then they... Oh, yeah. We've had staff members being threatened uh, by these individuals. Uh, we've had uh, staff members getting called and saying, oh, we're going to kill you. But, you know, so they're terrified. They're actually terrified to, uh, uh, to really, really open their mouths about what's happening. You know? So they heavily rely on us, but with limited information based on that fear, 
we can't be as effective as we'd like. Now we've done some things. We've had some task force uh, task forces uh, where I work that were pretty successful. But once again, you know, without the other side of the justice system keeping these individuals off the streets for uh, at least a long enough period of time where the streets can feel the positive impacts of that, uh, it's it's kind of futile. So, Dion, this is happening inside these hotels, essentially inside the shelters, mm -hmm. where we don't even see these people. We feel like. These are the people that are taken care of by mm -hmm. the system yeah. that are going through this. Right. What about the tents that we see on the street? Is it similar or is it, what's the situation on the street? Well, the tents have always been an issue. Uh, as long as they're up, we're not gonna see a change, but here's what happens on the streets. In places like Skid Row and other places, whenever gang members know that there are drug addicts, uh, that's a perfect opportunity for them to come together. We have Bloods and Crips who operate in harmony. We don't, we don't know for sure if they're operating in tandem, but we know they're operating in harmony and they've agreed that, hey, you take this street, you take that street, and they take up every block. And here's what happens. If you're homeless in Skid Row, and you're, let's say you blew in here from Chicago or Connecticut or Colorado, and you try to set up a tent on one of their blocks, the first thing that's gonna happen to you is a gang member's gonna approach you and they're gonna say, hey, uh, who are you? They'll say, I'm just homeless, I'm trying to set up. I said, well, this is our block, here's what you do. Wow. You either pay your entire social security check to stay on the block, or if you don't wanna do that, you have to agree to house our women for sex work, our drugs, or our guns, or allow us to use your tent for, for crime. And if you don't do that, you'll be assaulted. And what happens is for individuals like that, Skid Row becomes too dangerous to live in places like it, and it expands because now you have people leaving places like Skid Row to set up encampments in other parts of the county and other counties and other cities because it's too dangerous to be homeless in a place that was created for the homeless, if you can understand that. So what you end up seeing is across the county and across other counties, more Skid Rows popping up as a result of places like Skid Row being too dangerous to be homeless. Now, you guys, this seems like a very big problem if this, if this area that, that the homeless are supposed to be is kind of taken over by gangs, and mm -hmm. drug dealers, and even the housing. I'm very shocked by that because I didn't know they, they're getting into the housing yep. and they're selling drugs. And mm -hmm. Have you guys talked to the policy makers or leaders of the state or, or, or the LA to, to tell them this is what's happening? Been trying, you know, and there's only limited what I, what I could say about that. But uh, I've been trying to be a soundboard for all of this for years. Uh, but I think what's happening now is uh, they have a direction they want to go and they don't want to deviate from it for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because, you know, they're just they're getting money to go a certain direction in the harm direction route or the criminal justice reform route. But I've been trying. I've been trying. Uh, I've been using my platform, my voice. Others have been doing the same. And, uh, but nobody wants to hear it right now. Well, now they want to hear it, but it's too late. You know, it's kind of too late. The horse is out of the bin and it's going to take years to reverse it, but we got to start somewhere. And how you start is listening to individuals. If you want to talk, you don't want to talk to me. That's fine. That's cool. But talk to other people who are the boots on the ground and let them know that they're not going to get in trouble for telling the truth. Talk to a case manager at one of these hotels anonymously. Talk to uh, another police officer. Talk to the fire department who are responding to these fentanyl cases and us every single day. Talk to street teams who are uh, working and doing a, a tremendous job of going out and doing outreach beyond cubicles to reach these communities, but talk to them anonymously and allow them to be honest about the challenges that they're really facing. Because uh, if you don't do that, you're going to continue to 
run your head into the wall of doing the same thing over and over again. And we know that that's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results or throwing millions of dollars more, you know, it, it, but still engaging in the same, uh, uh, you know, impotent methods to solve the problem. So what's the method they're going by? They <coughs> just like build more of these housing units or build more well, of this? Well, of course, building more housing, we all want to see that. But is that really the answer? Because as we're hearing now, housing is not the solution for a lot of individuals who are in housing right now. I've housed 150 people over 10 years. Half of those people left the housing unit because of the rules. Once again, because we know it's addiction. But if we're talking about making the streets safer, you know, the goal is shelters safe sleeping spaces. We have to create those across the county. If we can do that, we can cut back on some of the encampments and improve the quality of life first, because you need the environment first. At those facilities, there should be dozens and dozens of counselors, caseworkers, wraparound services to help get these people into transitional housing or housing, uh, but we got to shelter them first. Trying to house people first is a noble idea, but you got to understand it costs $830,000 to build one unit to house one homeless individual. So any large lump sum of money you throw at a situation is going to dissipate really, really quickly because that one unit costs so much, you know, to house one person. And by the time you house that one person, they've already been replaced by dozens more. You know? And there's drug dealers going into that house and yes. selling that person drugs. Yes. Also, depending on where the, the housing is built. Uh, you know, I don't want to see one housing program closed in Skid Row, not one. I just don't want to see another one built in Skid Row. When we have 88 cities in L.A. County, we have cities in Orange County, and you can build facilities that can mitigate some of the fears that people have. I understand uh, why people are up in arms about building low-income supportive housing and shelter in their communities because nobody wants you to pull somebody fresh off the street with a crack pipe or a meth pipe in their, uh, in their mouth right, and house them first, because then you're going to have issues. But there are a specialty classes of individuals. We have the handicapped. These folks aren't going to destroy your community. You have the elderly in places like Skid Row. We definitely need to house them first. These folks are not going to destroy your community. We have families in Skid Row. I'm talking about mothers, fathers, single mothers with several children. We've proven that they're not going to destroy your community. The Union Rescue Mission is a wonderful organization that I support, one of my favorite charities. And they built a program called Hope Gardens in Silmore. And you should have seen the ugly fight because the other nemesis of ending homelessness is also nimbyism, not in my backyard. And the fight was tremendous. And I had to literally go speak on their behalf uh, along with others to help get that facility going. That facility has been up and running for a few years now, not one incident because you're housing people with a specific need, okay? But if you can house those three groups, the, uh, the elderly, um, the handicapped, and the family members, you have just taken away about a third of the problem right there. The other part of the problem is making sure that we bring teeth back in the laws. Yes, even for people struggling with addiction. When I say that, I'm not talking about throwing a crack addict in jail or a meth addict in jail for three or four years. I'm not talking about that. That's ridiculous, okay? What I am talking about is just a little bit of time for them to A, dry out, and then when they're released, bring back mandatory drug programs to ensure that these individuals are following up and doing everything they can to get clean. It used to be like this, right? It back used to in be like day. that with Prop what, 36. What changed it? Uh, once again, Prop 47 destroyed Prop 36. Prop 36 was a program, and I will, I will never say that Prop 36 was a tremendous success, okay? But what it did do was help a few people who were tired of getting arrested over and over again for not making their drug program 
turn their lives over. It was a push that some of those people needed. But when Prop 47 came along, it destroyed all of that. So now there's no mandatory drug treatment and most people aren't choosing to go to drug, drug program. Most addicts who are binging or going through their crisis, they're not going to choose a program. They're going to continue to choose to destroy themselves as long as we allow it as long as the society allows it. So yeah, we need to bring back something like Prop 36 uh, to A, get them cleaned up, hold them accountable, and put them back in mandatory programs so we can save more lives that way. Because right now, people are dying. Like I said, fentanyl is killing so many people. And I know for a lot of people, this is so far removed from them. Oh, that's just Skid Row or that's some place away from my community. Look, if we don't deal with it now, as many communities are finding out, yes, it is gonna be in your community. Yes, it's gonna be your son or daughter. We're finding high school kids who are uh, getting, uh, dying and overdosing from meth, just from smoking, from, from fentanyl, I'm sorry, just from smoking marijuana, because they're lacing with everything. We have to get back to some teeth in the law uh, for that, to get these people in a mandatory program, but more importantly, anyone selling narcotics. Uh, especially near a recovery zone or a drug program or a shelter or a low-income su supportive housing user should face serious consequences. You're not going to find them at Betty Ford. You're not going to find them at Malibu or Passages. They're not going to allow that to happen. Why allow it in Skid Row? And you mentioned Prop 57. Mm -hmm. What did Prop 57 do that's impacting what you guys can do in the field? Prop 57 is uh, more uh, dealing with violent crime. Uh, with Prop 57, they turn what we would consider violent felonies into nonviolent felonies. So many of these crimes are still felonies, but now they're considered nonviolent felonies, which is a lever to end up not only releasing individuals early uh, in a retroactive manner uh, for violent crimes they committed that are now considered nonviolent, but also what it does, it makes it hard for us to keep individuals who actively commit uh, violent crimes uh, from going to prison where many of them belong. So what it does, once again, it's another way that they took the teeth out of law. Let me ask you a question. Uh, think of a female loved one of yours, and she's at a bar, and someone slips GHB in her drink and uh, drags her home or into an alley and sexually assault her. Do you think wow. that's a violent crime? Do you believe that's a violent crime? It is. Must be. Like, it, yeah. Under Prop 57, it's not a violent crime. Let's say we're having this nice conversation and someone comes into this room and starts firing a gun into the room. And thankfully, no one gets hit. Would you consider that a violent crime? Absolutely. Under Prop 57, it's still a felony, but not a violent crime. Wow. So that's what Prop 57 is. So 47 made it impossible for us to deal with drug addicts and minor crimes or property crimes. 57 makes it very difficult for us to uh, keep people safe from violent criminals. And I, and I don't fault the voters for that. You know, if I was a, not a police officer and I haven't seen what I've seen for 27 years and I saw something that said the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act, I'd vote for it. Because many people don't have time to read the fine print or read between the lines. But when I read that, I knew that, that in 2014 that that was the beginning of the end of public safety and it erased 13 years of crime reduction. And for anybody, anybody denying that now is just a hack, you know, yes. So you guys are dealing with all this in the middle of the, this mess. Mm. How do you guys feel about all of this? Like well, as as yeah. police officers trying to, f and yeah. then you have to let people out, you arrest them and then they're out. It's, uh, it's killing the morale. You know, every police officer that I know, we want to get out there and make a difference. You know, you know we want to, you know, have that feeling of when I arrest a, a violent criminal and, and I do everything right, I had the probable cause, you know, I was honest, I was professional. Uh, I, I wrote that report, crossed every I, dotted every T, you know, and I presented uh, these facts to a judge. Uh, and I want to see the fruits of my labor. We're not seeing that. So what ends up happening somehow, 
because of these broken laws, people circle around and end up blaming us. They keep blaming uh-huh. us. It's the same cycle. Well, it's because the police aren't doing enough. No, our hands are tied for the most part. We're still out there. We're still visible. We're still trying to. But now I have to debate on whether do I stop this guy smoking a crack pipe or do I go down here and stop this guy from stabbing this lady with a knife? I have to go focus on this. But then this guy smokes a meth pipe and then he grabs a knife and goes down the street and stabs another uh-huh. lady. See, what people don't understand is uh, you can't separate addiction and drug sales from violence. Let's talk about drug sales. Drug, the drug trade is run through violence and intimidation. So you can't say that that's not related to violence. Many of our violent crimes are committed sadly, and I'm not trying to demonize people who are addicts. Believe me, and I've seen many addicts turn them around. I've been a part of helping people change their life. I know people can change if you give them environment. But yes, I've seen somebody who because of addiction go out and hurt other people. When your car gets broken into and your $1,500 laptop gets stolen, who do you think did that? They're trying to support their habit for the most part, okay? So we're not looking at the the cause and effect, the causations of crime. And one of the causations of crime is addiction. Because they want to make money to pay and they need a lot of money, right? Number one question I get asked by many colleges is, well, well, uh, how do these people support their habit if they're broke? They break into your car. They'll steal your laptop. They'll steal your cell phone, you know? Or they'll even rob you. I've seen people get robbed uh, for just a couple of dollars so somebody can run around the corner and get a bump of heroin you know, that's probably gonna end up killing them, you know? But this is the reality that people are afraid to talk about. I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. I'm tired. I'm tired of seeing what I'm seeing in this state. I'm tired of the complete absence of common sense and realism. We've fallen for idealism over reality and facts. I mean, we have even just saw the governor say, oh, it's a stupid idea for clean and sober. What? No, that's the goal, <laughs> It's to try to help people get clean and sober. So when you see leaders in the highest positions, of, uh, high positions of power, who had the bully, pul- pul- bully pulpit saying things like that, that's time to be afraid. That means nothing's gonna change for a long period of time, which is, in my opinion, what's causing, helping the fuel of mass exodus, exodus of an incredible state. Now, how can you keep going? You're in the, one of the toughest spots, you know, in terms of policing. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't dare to walk in Skid Row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're policing there. Mm-hmm. How are you going with all this that's going against you? Well, it, for me, it's hard to leave because I made a heart connection there. Skid Row is like my second home. You know, I, I, like I said, there are people who I know their birthdays. You know, uh, when, they, when they get sick, they call me Joseph, I'm in the hospital, I go see him. You know, these are the bonds that I've had with these individuals. So no matter how, whether things are good or bad, I'm not gonna just abandon them until they decide to throw me out of there. <laughs> but no, uh, but it's also my parents, the way they raised me. I never saw my parents give up on the homeless. I never saw my parents give up on foster kids. They raised 41 foster kids wow. in, during their 47 year marriage. Okay, I never saw my dad give up on his employees. These were individuals who wanted a second chance at, jo- at, a, at a job, but they kept getting passed over because of their skin color or their criminal history. And my dad would give them a second chance if they wanted it. That's the key. Now, if they messed up, he fired them in a heartbeat. But if he gave you a chance, because he believed in hands up, not hands out. Um, so having this for my parents, never seeing them give up, that's already in my DNA. So things are bad right now, but I'm not going to jump ship because every day I'm looking for the miracle. I'm looking for that miracle or how I or how I can help others be a miracle in the life of somebody uh, struggling in Skid Row, uh, you know, but I can't give up. Like, that's just not my nature. How about being vocal? You're pretty vocal and it's, it's hard for us to talk to police officers. They don't mm-hmm. usually come to the media. Yeah. And you've kind of put yourself out there. In the, and what, what are your thoughts on that? Are you concerned that we were talking about all these gang members, drug dealers? Do you? Are you concerned that they might come after you? 
Well, I've been speaking out for a long time, and a lot of these guys respect me because I treat them with dignity and respect. But I'm not going to let anybody deter me from telling the truth because things are getting so bad that if I, remain, if I continue to remain silent, I'm not just doing a disservice to the people that we try to protect all across this country, but I'm doing a disservice to the police officers who uh, are kind of being blackballed by right now, not only by politicians, but all of society. We all need each other right now. And if I sit back and I close my mouth and I just do the drinking bird and say, yes, we're all systemically racist, yes, yes, yes. If I do that, who am I helping? Nobody. I'm actually continuing this destructive path that we are on as a nation. Uh, but I feel like I don't want to wait till I retire to speak up. You know, and the fact that I'm an active police officer, I think, speaks volume because I'm going through it with you guys. I'm not looking at it from a 30,000 foot view after the fact based on my training and experience. I'm going through it with everybody and I need to humanize police officers. I need to encourage law enforcement officers to hang in there. The pendulum is going to swing back, but I also need to be a voice to help that pendulum swing back and reach our political figures and say, hey, look, have a talk with me. OK, what you guys are talking about regarding police officers, absolutely false. You're talking about me. And that's a lie. And I'm not going to let you lie on me and the vast majority of 800,000 men and women who are out there giving their best, doing a job that you're afraid to do. I won't allow that to happen. When the video went viral, we had a lot of different comments. Most of them were positive, <laughs> and there were some negative comments. Yeah. And, <laughs> and somebody mentioned this is propaganda. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on this? Well, anytime you speak out against the narrative, uh, someone's going to take it and swish it as propaganda or propaganda. Uh, uh, you know what the definition of propaganda is? It's when you uh, speak out against people in a way where you're embellishing facts or you're outright lying to destroy an, an opponent. Who am I trying to destroy? I'm not trying to destroy anybody. I'm telling you a truth that you're not allowed to see, that you have not, most people have not been privy to hear. You're not going to hear this on some networks. You're not going to hear this from some, nor you're not going to hear this on some uh, uh, websites. So this is the truth coming from a side that you didn't have access to. Why don't you take the time to listen and hear what I have to say rather than dismiss it as propaganda? No, uh, I, I don't serve to gain anything. I'm not getting paid for this. Uh, you know, I'm, I know. We don't pay for our <laughs> I know interviews. That. No, no, I know you don't. No, I'm not getting paid more or less to speak my mind about these, uh, these individuals. I'm not gaining from this. But what I hope to do that when I retire, look, I have a son that wants to be a law enforcement officer. And my job is to try to leave where I work a better place when he gets on, a safer place when he gets on. Uh, so he can carry on my mission of treating people with dignity and respect. Uh, that can't happen with me sitting on the sideline. That can't happen. You know, I have to speak up, I have to tell the truth and tell the other side that people aren't privy to hear. It's do necessary. Do you think if you don't speak up and if this trend continues, you may want to not recommend your son to become a police officer because <laughs> things could get. Yeah, if, if things continue to get worse, you know, uh, you, know, uh, you know, any father would be proud that his son would want to follow in his footsteps and I'm gonna support him in that. You know, uh, you know, of course, based on what's happening today, you would hope he picks up, he'd pick something else. Uh, but then again, I can't say that because when I came on, it was pr pretty tumultuous as well. I came on post Rodney King. I, I survived what was called the Rampart Scandal. I don't like calling it the Rampart Scandal. I call it the Rafael Perez Scandal. I survived other things and we came through it. You know, so at the same time, I have to look at it and go, you know what? I'm just gonna go ahead and support him. But before that he gets on this job, I'm gonna fight like an animal to make sure that officers are humanized instead of dehumanized, that officers are valued. And I'm gonna lend my voice and I hope other officers do the same. I don't wanna be the only one and I know there are others out there trying to do the same. Do you have any other thoughts for our audience? You know, uh, the, the one thought that 
we need right now more than anything is what I just said. Listen, we are falling for some of the most divisive tactics in this country uh, that I've ever seen. So right now there's somebody listening to the sound of my voice who hates police. Or you heard I'm a cop and you can't even wait to, to put that negative comment in the thread right now. <laughs> you can't wait to just cherish it. Forget everything I said, you're just looking for your word, your, your, your trigger word, right? Right now there's somebody out there you know, who hates somebody because they're white or, 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 or they're Hispanic or because they're black or because gay. Look, I said it before. This is my mantra for 2023. In the absence of meaningful contacts, we tragically rely on stereotypes of one another. Let's have some more meaningful contacts. I'm an open book. I love coming to talk to people. I love coming and sharing on college campuses and churches or wherever. Please, you wanna know what, what, what's really in the heart of a police officer? Hello, I'm a police officer. <laughs> let me share and let others share what's in their heart. And let's get back to sanity before we lose this state. Dion Joseph, police officer in Skid Row. It was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you. All right. If you like the show and our content, you should go to insiderca.com and sign up to our newsletter because we never know what can happen with social media and other platforms in terms of distributing our content. If you'd like to come on the show and be an insider, you can reach out to us at cainsider at epochtimesca.com. Again, it's cainsider at epochtimesca.com. We would love to have you on the show to tell us what's going on in your field in California. Thank you for watching. Please click the icon on the left to subscribe to our channel. We bring you the most pressing issues California is facing with straightforward and in-depth interviews. See you in the next video.